When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. For this season of Working, we left the East Coast behind and flew to Detroit. We're speaking with eight people who are drawing on the city's complex history as they work to create its future. While we were in Detroit, we kept going back to this one restaurant to have lunch, a place called Slow's Barbecue. Detroit doesn't have its own regional style of barbecue, but Slows pulls off a fusion of different techniques and approaches that feels personal and smart and, of course, delicious. We were so impressed that we decided to talk to its chef, uh, Mike Mativia, about how he does what he does. Chef Mike led us through the process of planning a barbecue dish and training a staff that can pull it off consistently. He also talks a little about sourcing ingredients, sometimes from other Detroit area establishments, and goes into the basic logistics of running a barbecue joint on a day-to-day basis. And though the magic of radio doesn't allow us, unfortunately, to share a meal with you, Chef Mike does give us an audio tour of the restaurant, which might give you a better sense of what you're missing if you can't make it there. Then, in a slate plus extra, Chef Mike shares some tips for home barbecuing. I learned a lot from him as someone who spends a lot of time uh, over the grill in the summer, and I think you will too. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? Um, my name is Michael Mativia. I'm the uh, chef at Slow's Barbecue in Detroit. What does that involve? What are your daily responsibilities as a chef? Um, my daily responsibility is worrying about the restaurant. It's, <laughs> it's pretty much all of it from um, you know scheduling the, uh, the kitchen staff, hiring them, firing them, creating the menus, running the specials, and uh, a lot of fielding emails on my day off. Uh-huh. So, yeah, just just stay worried about the place, and that's that's the root of the job. Is it so? Is it just this one location that you're overseeing that we're in now? Yeah, I, I have minimal involvement in the uh, the other locations, but this is this has been my home base for over ten years. Mm-hmm. So, were you involved with founding or opening this location? Um, yeah, in the sense that I was actually hired on as the the sous chef in the early days, mm-hmm. and um, we got all our menus completed, recipes written, and then. Um, started helping the construction crew. So uh, at a certain point of uh, working seven days a week, I eventually got sweat equity in the, the place. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that really kept me here for the long haul. 
Have you always been a barbecue guy? Is that how you ended up here? Um, I, I would say in my personal life, yes. In my work life, no. I've worked in just a, a variety of different types of restaurants. And um, when the opportunity to come here came up, combining you know the restaurant career I was already in with barbecue, I don't know. I just like starting fires, if nothing else. <laughs> it, it seemed like a fun opportunity. Did you did you go to culinary school before? No. No, I, uh, I registered at a certain point and planned on going and just didn't have time. Yeah. I was already getting um, positions in kitchens as a sous chef and, and whatnot, and you're putting a lot of hours in doing that. So school never came to pass. I bought the textbooks. I read those. <laughs> <laughs> Were they helpful? Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, so the menu here, I mean, it's, it's a barbecue place, but the, the menu is pretty complicated. I mean, it's not just like slab of meat mm-hmm. on a plate. I mean, there, there are real serious, complex dishes, some of the best macaroni and cheese that I've had in a long time, if not ever. What was it like kind of creating the menu? What, what, what went into those, that initial uh, effort to open up a, a sort of sophisticated but, but classic barbecue place like this? Well, um, you know, the heart of the menu came from Chef Brian Perrone, the executive chef, and um, co-founder with Phil Cooley of the restaurant. When I came in, he already had, you know, a vision of where this menu was going. We were looking at um, kind of representing regional barbecue from around the country, but putting our own Detroit, like, twist on it, I guess mm-hmm. you, you could say. And, um, you know, I, I jumped right on that, that mindset and started contributing items to the menu that I, I thought um, kind of stayed within that mindset. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a lot of the dishes, it might be a lot of complicated steps that go into them, but it's usually in an effort to serve a really simple dish. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not here to rethink barbecue. We just sure. want people to come here and have fun and feel like they, um, you know, they got a good deal and maybe did something a little decadent. Yeah. Is there a particular dish that you're especially proud of that you were involved with you can tell us about? Um Geez, I don't know. I guess I've, I've had involvement in most everything on the menu. Mm-hmm. I, maybe the pork belly sandwich um, called the Nature Boy, because mm-hmm. I found a way to slip Ric Flair into our menu. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'd, I'd say I got, I've got pride in the whole thing, you know. But tell us about the, the Nature Boy, though. What, what was the process there? How did that one come to be? What, what, what's actually in that sandwich, first of all? It is um, ancho rubbed uh, hickory smoked pork belly in how a long, hoagie roll. How long do you smoke it for? We smoke it for about four and a half, five hours, depending on the size of the belly. Then it gets um, cut into basically small cubes and then broiled till it's crispy. Mm-hmm. Um, we put it in a, a hoagie roll with bacon aioli mm-hmm. and um, baby spinach, uh, pickled onions. Mm-hmm. It's 11 a.m. and I'm salivating. Yeah, it's a really good sandwich. It, it started, though, uh, when I was having lunch at a restaurant in Chicago. I was eating pork belly there and just started thinking about, like, why don't we have pork belly on the menu at home? And, um, like, three days later, there was that sandwich. Oh. <laughs> uh, so... When it comes to actually making a sandwich like that, how, how involved are you in the, in the prep and uh, the actual production of the food on a daily basis? Um, I mean, I, it's 100% me in the beginning when it comes to, like, all of our new menu items and specials. I mean, I'm, it's, I'm really the only one touching the food in the, the beginning. So you're just wh- back there in the kitchen trying to I'm back out? there getting it all, yeah, getting it all prepared. You know, you test recipes and do all that. But once it actually turns into something that we're running on special or it's on the menu, then it gets basically turned over to the staff. So a lot of training comes into play. Mm-hmm. So I, I make sure the dish is right and then make sure they're trained in how to execute it. Once a dish like that is on the menu, is it 
pretty much consistent until you take it off, or, yeah. or do you fiddle with it? Um, no, once it's on the menu, it's on the menu. It's a little different with the, the specials. I'll usually give the, the sandwiches some goofy name, uh-huh. and if, uh, if I like the name more than the sandwich, <laughs> I'm more apt to change the sandwich ingredients than the, the name of it. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, what's it like, though, then, being the, the boss? I mean, it's, one part of your responsibility is, you know, testing out recipes, developing them, but... But as you said earlier, a lot of it is is about hiring the staff, mm-hmm. teaching the staff, maybe even firing the staff yeah. sometimes. Um, it's, I guess you could say it's emotional. You know, uh, you don't want to be stressed out by it. Um, mm-hmm. But when you come up working in, in kitchens, you're not really trained to do the public relations end of things or like all the hiring and, and firing and just dealing with people's personal lives on the day-to-day. So you work for years trying to become a, a good cook, and the more you um, move up the ladder, the further you move away from the cooking, and the more toward um, just dealing with, with people, which takes a lot of practice. And it, and it can be emotional because uh, I'm personally, I'm not somebody who likes to have to fire somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, I, there's a couple examples I can think of of people who, like, yes, without question, this had to happen. Sure. But other times it's just, you know, you get somebody violating tardiness policies mm-hmm. or whatever it may be that all of a sudden they wander down that path. And I just don't like having to, to be that guy, but I am, you know, and you do it consistently and stick to your guns with it. So timeliness, understandably important. What, what kind of hours do you spend in, in the restaurant? Um, in the, you know, the beginning, it was seven days a week you know, anywhere from 80 to 100 hours. That is definitely not the case these days. Mm-hmm. You know, if uh, if it's a decade later and I still had to do that, I better get better at training staff. Yeah. Um, these days, it, it can float anywhere between 40 and 50. It's much more refined. Um, and even the staff itself, like most kitchens I've worked in when I was younger, like working a 50-hour week is not odd at all. We don't really do that here. We try to structure the kitchen staff so they work a normal 40-hour week. We try to keep their schedules as set as possible. Um, we try to keep a kitchen that's calm and fun to work in because we get busy. We could be on an hour and a half wait, and if you have a, a kitchen that's used to yelling at each other, it just gets worse and worse. So we got a pretty calm environment back there. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, the people, uh, yeah, we, we work pretty standard hours. That's nice. Yeah. How do you keep the kitchen calm? How do you how do you keep that that sense of stability? Well, um, a lot of it comes from uh, me being calm. Mm-hmm. Like I've I've worked under chefs before that are really hot tempered, and um, frankly, I'm one of those people. But you just because you have a bad temper doesn't mean you can't control it. And um, I've worked for a lot of people who don't really seem to consider that, and they'll you know, throw a, a plate or punch a wall or start screaming at the staff. And I, I've been there and I just don't like that environment. So I try to stay pretty, pretty mellow back there. I'm, I try to be very respectful with the staff and I don't tolerate it if I don't get it back. If I don't get respect back and if they don't respect one another, like you're not going to last in this environment. If uh, you come back there and start disrespecting other people, you just, you don't have a job here anymore. And over time, you know, it's pretty easy for people to come in and figure out that, like, this is actually kind of nice. Nobody's going to scream at me today as long as I get my job done. And, you know, then we they stick it out. We've got a lot of longevity with our cooks. Your restaurant is called Slow's. Yep. And uh, barbecue is a relatively slow food mm-hmm. for the most part. That uh, pork belly sandwich you make, 
four, four and a half hours yeah. in the smoker. Uh, the brisket you guys make here, I think, is 10 hours, something like that? Um, you know, that stuff usually goes at least 12, you 12. know, sometimes 13, depending yeah. on how big the meat is. So does that element of uh, the food you're making here contribute to, to the the tone, the style, the feel of, of the restaurant at all? That, that I hope so. <laughs> you know, when um, when the place was named Slow's it, at the time, it was kind of a, a tribute to the slow food movement in uh, Italy, mm. which is um, kind of a calling to people to slow down their lifestyle, starting with your food, like get away from fast food, go back to cooking with your family and slowing things down. And, um, yeah, maybe it has. Like barbecue is not a stressful food it's a it's a patient food and it takes a lot of love and respect mm -hmm. so yeah maybe it's the the food making it happen i hope i have a little to do with it but it's, it's probably just the brisket yeah <laughs> what about uh sourcing ingredients uh, are you involved with with supplying the restaurant with with the various yeah. meats and stuff you know sourcing we've gone through a lot of changes over the years as we've grown because it's um it's been our effort to keep everything all natural but as you start selling more product, it becomes more difficult to find suppliers that can keep up with you, especially um, when you've got a few different stores open trying to sell the same things. Mm. But um, what we do like to do in the different slows, being uh, Pontiac, Grand Rapids, our to-go location, is to run different specials there. And um, I personally like to, as much as I can, source ingredients for those specials locally. Mm. Like I buy a, a whole hog every week or two from a local farm. And we smoke that outside. Um, now that summer's upon us, there's a couple um, little farms in the in the area. We like to buy like lettuces or or whatever they might have. You know, you don't really know going in. You just find out like what do you got this week, and then you play with it. So, yeah, that pretty much keeps it as local as we can. Mm -hmm. And, and the other ingredients, things like uh, the, the buns, I think some come from... Uh... Uh, those come from Zingerman's in Ann Arbor, right. which uh, I don't know uh, how much you guys know about them. Tell us about it. I mean, it's a it's, it's a, a really It's a really cool place. company. Yeah. yeah, it's, um, you know, I personally don't even know the whole Zingerman's history, but my understanding is that over time as the business grew from just a deli and they had employees who started having ideas like, hey, we should start making our own bread and open a bakery they would actually support their employees in those endeavors to let them grow and grow their own business at the mm -hmm. same time, which I, I thought was really, really cool. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, their baked goods are just awesome. Mm -hmm. like we tried a bunch of different things, and it, it's really hard to beat Zingerman's quality and consistency. Do you see yourself fitting into uh, the regional food scene in other ways? I mean, a lot of uh, great restaurants in in Detroit in the Detroit area mm -hmm. already open more opening all the time it seems like uh, how do you fit into that landscape more generally um, I you know even though we're only 10 years old you almost feel like the the old man at, at this point you know there's definitely older restaurants in Detroit but for for various reasons we drew a lot more attention than uh, a lot of those places have when we mm -hmm. open and a lot a lot of stuff happened af after we did like we really watched a boom of places opening around us so I, I i'm just proud to still be part of it you know i i love watching the restaurant scene grow i don't have that uh that mentality of oh shit somebody's opening on our our block they're going to take our customers like it doesn't have to be that way like you should be friendly and be part of a restaurant community if they get used to coming in the city you know they're not going to come here every time they should try other restaurants and then come back to slows too <laughs>
Do you have time to eat out at other other places around? Um, once in a while, you know, when I, I'm not here, I'm usually um, with my kids. I'm a single dad, yeah. so that takes a lot of time. Um, but my kids do love going out to eat, especially for Asian food. Mm. So that's usually where we uh, we end up. Do you ever have times when something you tried in another restaurant uh, influences what you find yourself doing in your kitchen here? Yeah, I could say that. I mean, like the example with the pork belly, I ate right. it in Chicago, all yeah. of a sudden, like, bang, here it is. Um, I took a trip out to Kansas City several years ago and spent about 10 days out there doing nothing but exploring and eating barbecue. And um, even though the, I don't think that I was influenced hugely by the food because I was already really accustomed to what I was going to go try there. Mm -hmm. What I came back with was different ideas on kitchen staffing because hmm. I was uh, fortunate enough to meet a couple of people running those restaurants who let me look at how they were doing things. Mm -hmm. and. That's what I came back with is like, shit, we need to hire some more cooks around here. Like so we're, we're working a little too hard. Density of, of workflow and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of those things. It's one of the reasons I like to go out to eat or to travel in general is to just keep fresh ideas coming into my head. You know, it's at no, at no point am I going to be reinventing or inventing something new. It's all out there already. It's mm -hmm. just, you just have to go see it and be reminded of it sometimes. Figure but it's kind out. of funny when you come back yeah. and it's like, no, it wasn't about food this time. This is all about uh, staffing and payroll. But yeah. at least at least I learned something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the um, the block that we're on here does seem really interesting. Uh, it's It struck us as as like almost like a mini Bushwick or something like uh -huh. this. There's like a great coffee shop down the street. I yeah. think there's a good, uh, like a sweet store or something like this. Oh, the Sugar House. It's a uh, it's a classic cocktail bar. Oh, is that like a prohibition okay. style cocktail bar. All right. So even more like a yeah, yeah. kind of Brooklyn-y yep. feel. Um, is that is that new? That kind of feel of the the restaurant scene, the business scene in, in I, Detroit. I would say yes, it is. I mean, it used to be that um, like the restaurants in Detroit were really far away from one another. Like you go downtown and there wasn't a lot of opportunity to bar hop on foot mm -hmm. and to really like take a cab or drive around a uh, city. And over time, we've really watched that change. Like all these abandoned buildings are getting taken over. They're getting cleaned up, beautifully renovated. And all of a sudden, we're getting whole strips of open businesses again and people who are actually bar hopping around and, uh, and all that. It's pretty cool. So that's new, but it also seems like there is an established barbecue tradition in Detroit itself, even as yeah. you're drawing on traditions from around the country. Sure. Uh, were you conscious of or thinking about uh, how barbecue is done here in Detroit as you were setting this place up? Not really. I, I think maybe conscious of it in the respect that you don't want to do exactly what somebody else is doing. Sure. But um, no, we, we went at it completely from the mindset of this is what we like. Mm -hmm. You know, this tastes good to us. Like, we like how tender this is or how salty this is or whatever. It was really, uh, it was a lot of just personal opinion and putting it out there and hoping that, like, what we liked, other people would, would like too. Mm -hmm. What about, uh, I mean, you, you know, one of the, the things I think always with barbecue is, is trying to find that balance between tradition and, and, and innovation. Mm -hmm. Is there much room for, for improvisation, for, for rethinking those traditions that you're citing or drawing on? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, um, it's barbecue's been going on for a long time, and I wouldn't call it a rut, mm -hmm. but you do have, like, those standards that, depending on where you are in the country, 
you're looking at a couple different kinds of ribs, some brisket, some sausage, pork butts, and that's awesome. But yeah, there there is that point where as it grows into more into the entire country instead of being such a southern-based tradition, like you're going to see different mindsets of how to go about this thing. And um, like up here, like I do more outdoor barbecuing in the winter than I think I do in the summer. Really? I just I just like the snow, yeah. and uh, I like being outside in the winter time, and you can see how that can influence your food, not just with the flavors that you're trying to come up with something maybe a little more rich instead of, I don't know, whatever thing you're going for because of the weather. Or you're uh, smoking things twice as long because it's 20 degrees out, uh-huh. and so you get a different flavor based on that. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of room for innovation, but I don't think it's going to go too far off the rails, you know. What are the actual tools of the trade that you use in the restaurant here? When I'm When I'm barbecuing at home doing just like really basic indirect heat mm-hmm. on a like a Weber kettle right. grill, but I assume you're you've got much more sophisticated tools for, for barbecue here, I would guess. Yeah, well we've we've got um like two main machines here. Um one of them is Charlene. We, uh-huh. They've got names? Yeah, I named the smokers. Nice. Out <laughs> <laughs> of respect. So uh Charlene has been here since we opened. Like the wall had to be torn down bring the smoker in and build the wall back up. So it was definitely committed to, like, you're not going anywhere. Um, that one is a, it's a Southern Pride smoker. It's a pretty simple mechanism. Uh, a pilot light lights hickory wood, and um, the fire heats the smoker up in a rotisserie, and as the fire goes down, it'll hit it with a little more flame, get it going back up. Um, out on the patio, we have a, a Yoder smoker. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a company out of Kansas. And it's a 3,000-pound monster. And that thing is... Uh, What's it made of? Iron, or, well, steel. Yeah, it's a big steel beast. You can take mm-hmm. a look at it when we're done here yeah, if you well, like. Um, that one, though, is just a, uh, a charcoal chimney. I get like an all-natural uh, mesquite charcoal mm-hmm. just to get the fire going. And after that, it's all just hickory and monitoring the air and, and the fire. How do you know what types of wood to use? Is there a rationale of that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the standard for our regular menu here is hickory. It's plentiful and it, it burns really well. When we first opened, we were using a lot of apple wood because we were we just were getting a hold of it by the truckload really easily. Mm-hmm. But what that meant is we'd start smoking something at ten at night, and I'd have to get up at at two or three in the morning to come down here and load more wood into the smoker because it burns up really quickly. Yeah. We found with the hickory. It's got a longer burn time. I get more sleep. It mm-hmm. works out a little bit better. Um, <laughs> Do you still have to have people monitoring overnight, though? Well, usually we've, we have people here till at least like 2 in the morning. Mm-hmm. So we have them uh, add some wood to the, uh, the rotisserie smoker before they leave. And we're back here by like 8 in the morning. And um, by then the wood's burnt out, but it's absorbed all the smoke it's going to get anyway. When it comes to the big one outside, if I'm doing a whole hog in that, that means that, you know, 12, 13 hours, I, I might leave to go let my dog out for a minute, but otherwise, um, you know, they're keeping an eye on that fire. Does it does it have a lock or anything on the outside? Do you ever have to worry about anyone coming and it, it's peeking a, in there? It's a lock, like, in the sense that the General Lee on the Dukes of Hazards hood has a lock. <laughs> it's just like that little clip that goes on it, uh-huh. which is actually in my key bowl at my house right now. Uh-huh. Um so, yeah, I, I've caught people trying to peek in there before. It's made me think I should get an actual <laughs> lock. 
You're listening to Chef Mike Mativia. Next, he gives us an audio tour of Slow's Barbecue. That's coming up. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Yeah, oh, yeah, I know this is interesting. When I was younger, so really? I get really obsessive about the music around here. Huh. Is, it, is that something you think about, about creating the kind of tone or vibe of the restaurant in that way? Yeah, well, you know, you have to leave a lot of that to the actual staff itself, or they're the people out here working. Mm-hmm. But as one of the, the owners and somebody who lives a lot of their life here, like, yeah, you want to kind of have a, a vibe that goes with the food and the customers. Sometimes you just got to come out and look at the dining room and like, these are people, do they look happy? Are they nodding their heads? Do they look disinterested? And be like, I'm going to change the music and mm. see if uh, we can liven this room up. Shake things up a bit. Yeah. Or right. mellow it out. You never know. Fair. Like, these people yeah. are acting wild. I'm going to put on, yeah, I'm going to put on some old jazz and calm <laughs> them down. Nice. You want to? Yeah. Um, this is the entrance to the kitchen. Um, we've got two different friolators here that I'm surprised they're not bubbling right now. Um, these two big fancy uh, rationale ovens that are uh, an oven, a steamer, and a pain in the ass all combined into one. Why pain in the ass? <laughs> they break a lot. <laughs> like, just little things like that. I don't know how many of these handles we've gone through. But uh, yeah, it's one of... It's such a sensitive mechanism, and it does such amazing things that, I don't know, it's like driving a Cadillac. If something goes wrong, it's going to be obvious really fast. Each of them has a bunch of racks. Do you use them for, for holding, holding we use food them to like, stuff like this? Um, yeah, hold food, um, reheat items. Uh, we do a lot of cooking in there, steaming of things. It's pretty much a machine that can do anything. Like if I were ever like a super rich guy i just want one of those in my kitchen and i want one now too i'd be good to go i'm sure it wouldn't break enough if or like it does here if, uh, probably not it wasn't being used 12 hours a day and then there's it looks like a big cast iron stove over here is yeah um this first station is the brisket station um where they keep extremely busy 
Like anybody who works this station, like don't arm wrestle them. Like they spend eight hours Slicing. cutting, cutting, cutting. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then down here is the center of the line where they uh, do all the saute, the cutting of the ribs, and a few other things. And then Some down here is uh, the pork station, which probably churns out, you know, a good percentage of the restaurant's food just because it's the pulled pork. Um, and the amount of that stuff we go through, like, yeah, these guys stick busy. You're lucky to be here on a, a slow Monday morning where they're not running around. Yeah. And then uh, you got some salamanders, too. Is that what these are called? Yeah. Um, those things, we use one of them to brown some enchiladas. Otherwise, they're almost constantly filled with macaroni and cheese. Just browning the top of it? Yeah, yeah. You know, on a day like today, it won't be so heavy, but, you know, get us on a weekend, we'll go through a few hundred of those. And then the flat top, is that for, for crisping buns up? Uh, yeah, crisping the buns. We, we grill all the bread. I, that's something when I go out to eat myself. I don't know why I'm so judgmental about cold buns, uh, but I really am. But yeah. take a little effort and grill your bread, everybody. Do you, uh, uh, do you like butter or anything beforehand? Oh, or? yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I am not going into it with like a calorie saving mindset. I want it to be good. It seems like that's important with barbecue too, because you don't want it to soak through the the bottom bun, especially with yeah, the yeah. cold pork. Yeah, exactly. You got a sauce. You know, and meat. it's just it complements it. You know, a little bit of crispness on the bread. How could that possibly be bad? Can't hurt. Yeah. Huge dishwashing station over here. It is a big dishwashing station. Um, during the day, where uh, we got. Richard over here who can hold the tank together himself but once nighttime hits it usually takes two guys to do what he does himself um, old industrial dishwasher for yeah it's a big uh, conveyor belt before this thing we had a machine like a large version of what you'd have in your house and we're still just cranking through it was pretty miserable yeah so this these things I, I used to use these they work pretty fast yeah yeah, you know, as we've grown over time, you got to kind of keep up with the technology and do your best to give the staff the best tools you can get your hands on. Yeah. Is this um, your smoker this, over here? This is Charlene. And, uh, can you describe Charlene for us? Well, today Charlene is a dirty girl. <laughs> as you can uh, see, uh, we just pulled a bunch of pork out of there, so there's a lot of fat dripping. Um, so she ends up getting cleaned every few days just to scrape out... Uh, excess fat and stuff. Off it looks like three racks. Uh, in there. Well, it's four different um, carousels oh, okay. that each hold three racks. There's only two in each right now. But yeah, we keep the thing clean, but you don't want to go so ape on it that you're removing the seasoning. Mm. You got to kind of treat these smokers like you would a cast iron pan. Mm -hmm. You know, that flavor is going to develop over the years in it, so you don't run it through a dishwasher. Now, so, yeah, where does the smoking is, com component um, go? Back here. It's got these two doors that swing open, but then there's a side door over. Right back okay. here's a firebox. And um, yeah, you see a pilot light come out. You stack your uh, wood in front of it. The pilot gets the wood going and uh, fire maintains the heat. And as the fire goes out, then the pilot clicks back on to keep your uh, your heat even. So you so mostly, you mostly keep these doors thing. closed, I assume, when, when, yeah. when you're cooking, but you can open that up occasionally and check the smoke level? Yeah, just to make sure that uh, you know there's wood in there if you need to add any anymore mm -hmm. but yeah this uh this machine definitely spoils you because we have it down to such a formula yeah like um going outside is different like if it's the wind moves from the the east or something it's like oh everything just changed mm. where is in here it is not like that 
Yeah. But if it was, I don't think we'd ever be able to keep up. <laughs> and then uh, over here is the pantry station, which um, they're making uh, the salads on the menu, putting desserts out. Um, surprisingly, here at the barbecue restaurant, salads are not the hottest item. So uh, I, I can't imagine why. Yeah. What What's up with that? But anyway, the pantry guy, um, they do a lot of our prep, too. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, for every salad he puts together, they probably just sold 20 pork sandwiches. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this is kind of the uh, salad prep area. And um, moving uh, past there, you just come down to more prep area. And then our basement, where you got like a walk-in cooler down there, walk-in freezer, more prep tables. Is that yeah. where most of the meat is kept? Yep. Yeah, it's all kept down there. Our uh, disorganized office. Yeah. Every couple of weeks we arrange a cleaning and then clean half of it and then it's messed up again. So you got some onions caramelizing here? Um, yep, that's to make a, a smoked meatloaf. Nice. That's something uh, I added to the menu a few months ago. It's like a little individual uh, meatloaf glazed with poblano barbecue sauce. They, it must be good because those smell incredible. It's a, it's a good meatloaf. It's a yeah. lot different, I think, than, uh, than what most people uh, expect from a meatloaf. It's got a lot more barbecue flavor to mm -hmm. it. It's got smoked gouda in, in it, so it's really moist and kind of gooey. Nice. Yeah. Can we see the, uh, the outside? Uh... Yeah. This is just the uh, service drive where we've seen some pretty sweet accidents over the years. Seen a lot of cars get towed away. Um, yeah, then just the backs of all of our neighboring businesses. You got Sugar House here, Astro, uh, yeah. O'Connor, the real estate office, LJ's. And is this where you do have the, out, the other smoker? Or is that no? That's uh, out on our patio. We oh, can go okay. out there yeah. too. This is uh, well where the staff does their smoking. Yeah, I do my smoking on the patio. <laughs> gotcha. We're actually doing some construction on our patio right now to expand a little bit of our space, so it'll look a little nice out there. even louder out here um yeah this is our patio and uh this is jesco one of the other smokers it's huge yeah it's a monster you can, can fit about 170 pound pig inside of it yeah so does it it opens over here yep. you can face the patio while you're working out here on yep. this. so nice. these were moved so that you know usually with a whole hog depending on its size i'll either end up cutting it right in half and putting yeah. it on two racks or if it's smaller, just uh, splaying it out. Is, is the top rack removable here? Yeah, they're both removable. And then um, there's a big firebox down here. So it's got four different thermometers on it. Is that uh, uh, so that you make sure you know what the, the heat is in different areas of it? Yeah, it's uh, it was a little challenge getting to know this thing when we first brought it here to learn how to regulate all the heat, but uh, Thing's really well insulated. It's got a lot of controls for airflow. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've got it down to the point now. I can get all four of them pretty much saying the same thing. Nice. And down here is just the uh, firebox. Just nice water gathered on top of it. A lot of rain this morning. Yeah. So 
here's something else I'll be doing today, cleaning the smoker. Uh-huh. And then when you're when you're first getting a, a fire going in there, you, you say you start, you do a chimney start? or what Yeah, I do a chimney start with um, that natural mesquite charcoal, and once that gets going, it's just uh, lay the feeding, logs on top of yeah, it? feeding logs into it. And, um, you know... There's a top-loading system here that yeah. we're looking at. Yep. Yeah. And then, you know, oftentimes it's hickory just because we always have it around, but I also like getting a hold of other wood. Like, we got a stack of pecan wood back there right now I want to play with this week. Just different flavors that you can get out of it. Get different, uh, cool. Yeah. Nice. You're listening to Mike Mativia. After this brief break, he talks about the logistics of running a barbecue restaurant and discusses some of the things that go hand in hand with smoked meats like sauces and obviously booze. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Um, can we talk a little about sauces? Sure. Uh, you have, I think, five different main sauces mm-hmm. that, that you set out on the table. Yep. And then just uh, a rotating cast of, we call them seasonal sauces, but I don't really base it on what season it is. It's more, um, what am I trying to use up around here? Sure. You know, with all the beers we have on draft, you see a lot of beer-based barbecue sauces, uh-huh. local soda pop, stuff like that. How do you develop a barbecue sauce? What's, what's the process there? Um... It's, it's a lot easier now than it was in the beginning. You know, when we first opened, I'd made barbecue sauce before, but not to the point where it is now where I just in the back of my mind, I can balance like the salt and the sweet and the spice and all that. In the early days, it was a lot of experimenting and a lot of, I don't know, a lot of sauce eating. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, most of the sauces that are on the table now, those recipes came together pretty quickly and easily. You know, it was just an idea we had like, okay, let's do an apple barbecue, let's do a mustard-based one, and then we just started uh, screwing around in the kitchen and see what we could come up with. Do you have a favorite style of barbecue sauce? I, I guess it would probably be the style they would call Kansas City-style barbecue sauce, the really traditional, like, sticky, sweet and tangy barbecue sauce. Kind of like ketchup-based? Yeah. Or I mean, you I, probably use, like, tomato paste or something in it? Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, fair, fair. <laughs> it, it depends on the sauce. I mean, yeah. I enjoy, like, a fun out-there barbecue sauce, I, but I think I, I like making them more than I like eating them. I usually go back to the real basic stuff. One of the things that really surprised me about this place, uh, and again, not... I don't know why, why I should be surprised by this, but I was struck by it, was how... Uh, deep your your booze list is i mean like mm-hmm. you you've got a lot of really interesting and actually kind of weird beers and yeah. ciders on the menu a lot of kind of funky sours and things yeah. like this is that your doing that's not my doing um that i i would uh, put that beer list mostly on tara garrity she's our uh, our general manager mm-hmm. at this location that woman's beer knowledge it's almost annoying <laughs> like like um <laughs> It's just really impressive, but you start talking to her, 
And um, and I've met other people like this too, Cicerones that I know and stuff. Like you know when you're you're outmatched. Like it's almost not worth having the conversation. You just let them do their thing. Yeah, you do your thing. Hopefully, I pick up on something. But beyond her um, her knowledge, mm-hmm. um, she's just got such great relationships with all the vendors. She's a really mm-hmm. just sweet person, and um, but she also, uh, I guess, has the restaurants back. Like you're not going to sell her something just because you think she should buy it. Like she's got a lot of confidence in what goes into this bar, and she and I do talk a lot about um, about the food and how that plays with the beer. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of times when you see these really oddball beers here. If you were to grab Tara and ask her, what do you think of that? I almost guarantee she's going to name a food item in her description. Mm-hmm. Like she specifically thought of like, oh, this chicken sandwich would taste great with this beer. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it's here because it complements the, the restaurant on a whole. Do you ever talk with her about those kind of issues when you're starting to develop a new dish? Or does that just come oh, up in the Oh, back? yeah. You know, I, she and I have been very close friends for years before this restaurant even mm-hmm. opened. So it's fun working with her now and having such a good working relationship. We, we like to do a... Um, events as much as we can here in the summer uh, be it beer pairing dinners or just fun patio parties and that's when it comes to she and I having to talk a lot about um just beers that she can get a hold of what my mindset is going into the the party itself like what do I want to achieve with this and um then it's a lot of tasting like there have been a a lot of times where it's like, well, I had to go to work and they made me taste beer today. Where <laughs> you will sit there for it can be like an hour or two uh-huh. with um some beer wrapper. Like you know, you'll be uh, lucky enough to meet a brewer that they brought over from Belgium just to explain his beer. Like that's happened, and I was just amazed by it. Like yeah, I'll sit here for an hour tasting Belgian beer with you, and then you just kind of write notes as as I taste things. It's it's like oh man, this this kind of reminds me of a pastrami. And then I just start writing that stuff down. And, you know, a few weeks later, you're probably going to end up seeing pastrami coming out of the kitchen and that beer coming out of the bar. What's the most difficult element of, of running a business like this one for you? Um, geez, I, I, I don't know. I try not to think about that part of it. Uh, it would probably be uh, staffing. Yeah. Just, you know, not just maintaining a staff but making sure that the staff you have is fulfilled in their jobs and that they're they're happy to come here. I mean, there's no way you're going to come here five days a week smiling and, you know, thrilled. I'd think you're a psycho. Yeah. <laughs> but in general, the, yeah, I, I want these people to be happy to be here, and that's, I don't know, that's on my mind a lot. Like, I'm pretty confident in, in the food and what I'm doing with that, but dealing with people from day to day and, you know, wanting to – keep this respectful environment that's a constant learning process that's what really throws me for a loop around here for you i mean you are the boss so it's got to be you know you're on a different level from your employees uh how do you maintain open lines of communication how do you ensure that they are able to to come to you or or, or make their feelings hurt if if something is off or um what have you i i don't know probably effective use of profanity you know, <laughs> I, I came up a, as a cook, so I still act and talk like a cook. I'm not somebody who um, had it in their head. I'm going to go to culinary school and to be a chef. And then they went to school and within two years actually got that that job. Mm-hmm. Like I busted my ass to get where I am, like working on the line. And I know what the line's like. You're, you're pirate back there. 
and you kind of act and talk like one. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm on the, the same level with those guys. They, I hope they recognize how honest I with I am with them about everything, and I seem to get that back for the most part. I hope. So just being maintaining yourself on the yeah just trying to maintain that like i'm not bullshitting you so you don't have to treat me that way like Mm -hmm. uh i'm honest with you i'm forward with you be the same with me yeah so how has this block changed since you first opened up here what's it been like to to witness those shifts um it's got a lot more going on i mean when we first opened um there was lj's down the street they're still open that was um the bar that we would go to every day when we were done working here. And that was pretty much it. Um, music studio opened across the street about the time we opened. Um, that's the building right there with the squirt sign hanging on it. So then it was just us. And then all of a sudden other things started to pop up. The burger place across the street, the Sugar House, the great cocktail bar next door, Astro, uh, the coffee shop, incredible pastries in there. Um, One of the best pour-overs I've ever had as well. They're really incredible. Just astonishing coffee. Yeah, that's um, Dai and Jess. Um, Dai used to work here while he was building the coffee shop. He worked here as an expediter. Mm. So he'd work here all day, then he'd go next door and work on that. So it's, it's just really cool to see somebody create these businesses from the ground up and, um, and just kind of watch the neighborhood flourish around them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been nice. Do you, do you feel that you're contributing to uh, what's happening in Detroit, to the way that it's it's changing or growing? I, I hope so. Um, you know, I I really love a lot of the new restaurants that have opened over the, the past several years who are doing stuff wildly different than what we do mm-hmm. here that I got a lot of respect for. I hope that um, what we still bring to the table um, is just reminding everybody that if you keep your, uh, your product consistent, and you keep your mindset consistent of wanting to be part of your community and give back to it, that you'll, you can have longevity, mm. you know, cause uh, most restaurants don't last more than a year or two and we're going on 11 years here. And, um, yeah, I, I hope that other, um, restaurant folk see that. And then, you know, once they're a few years into their, their place, they realize like, that's what I got to do. Stick to my guns, treat my staff, right make my food consistent and I'll get that 10 years and then maybe I'll get that 20 years too. There are a lot of persistent economic disparities in Detroit city that has some very wealthy people mm-hmm. thanks to some of the businesses in the area uh, and, and a lot of poverty still. Um, this is a place, a restaurant that's that's selling relatively high-end goods. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how do you feel yourself fitting into the kind of economics of Detroit more generally? Well, um, like you say, we, we are sen- selling like a, a higher end item, but that's, um, I, you really have to stick to your guns with that, that uh, there, are, there are people out there who, um, who, who want that food and are willing to pay for it. And if you were to compare our, our prices to really everyone around us, you'll see that there's not really any sort of disparity there, mm-hmm. that we're, we're pretty, um, pretty middle of the road there yeah. and comparable. Um, you know, I, I think one thing we've, we've brought to the neighborhood is providing a lot of jobs, mm-hmm. even though, um, and we do get a lot of neighborhood people who eat here, but you know, even more so we get people from the neighborhood who work here. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's been great just to see people come in here, get jobs. They redistribute their money into other businesses that they go to. Um, 
and we we get a lot of customers from the burbs actually mm-hmm. you know um a lot of people are coming down here for tigers games they're going to the theater they're doing whatever it is that you do when you come down to the city so you know our audience you know you're coming out of oakland county there's a lot of money in oakland county so you were seeing everybody in here it could be like the neighborhood guy who maybe has enough money to go out once a month mm-hmm. and it's i'm proud that he picked this place and i hope it was worth it to him and then you get other people who they probably do this three times a day every day and don't even think about it like we've, we've got the whole spectrum how do you think about pricing generally i mean it, has that changed over the years what much you're charging for stuff yeah well it's had to change over the years because um our prices change right. and there was definitely a, a spell there where our prices especially for our um our meat mm-hmm. just kept going up and up and up mm-hmm. and our prices never did and so at a certain point like yeah we have had to change the menu and um and play with the prices a little bit but it was always in line with our own price changes mm-hmm. and um yeah you basically set up a formula of this is what I need to make off this item because of this is what the lights cost and this is what it costs to pay the staff and this is what it needs to be um, profitable. And then once you come up with those numbers, the pricing gets a lot easier because you just put a recipe together and like, okay, reality dictates if it doesn't cost this, we close. Was that kind of mathematical profit-based thinking something that came naturally to you or did you have to learn? No, not really. Um, you know, like I said, coming up in this, I cook and I eat in a lot of this, these other um, these chef skills you, you pick up along the way. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that one did not come naturally to me. Like, I am not a math person by nature, but I've gotten pretty good at kitchen math. How much of your day would you say you spend thinking about that kitchen math about the bottom line? Oh, too much of it. Like, I'll, I'll think about that driving here. Like, I have to remind myself to think about something else, you know, and then even that's probably work-related. But yeah, it's too much of it. For you as someone who presumably really loves the work, the art of barbecue, mm-hmm. is, it, is it ever a bummer that you have to focus on those material realities? Yes, it is a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> There's really no other way to put it. You know, yeah. I, I have to spend a lot of time at the computer, and, you know, I, I get it. I mean, there's no way around it in this day and age. Like everything from the way the schedule is written to the way the invoices are received, it obviously goes through computers. And um, so, yeah, there's a good chunk of the week spent at that, that computer in the basement office. And it w- I would very much rather be outside at the smoker mm. or even standing on the line uh, making a burger. But <laughs> I don't know. You make the best of it. I've gotten pretty fast at typing. Well, what's the most rewarding part of of the process of running this this place um honestly it might sound corny but i think it's my kids reaction to it i mean before my kids i don't know what the most rewarding part was i think i was too busy to think about it i think it was the fact that i was taking care of myself and um was helping to employ other people who were taking care of their own lives at this point though it's it's that it's the kids um like uh, earlier in the year, my son had a project at school where they had to make a, a timeline of their life. And for uh, they had to come up with five of their most important life events. And for an eight-year-old, it's pretty, you know, you're curious. Like, what, do you, what happened in your life in these eight years that are really going to stand out to you? And one of them was helping my dad smoke a pig at work because it made me feel important. And uh, that really hit me. Like, 
you know, because I didn't think that much of it. I've drug them down here a few times, like, hey, buddy, can you help me do this? And I'll show them how to clean the inside of the pig out and how to cut the thing up and all that. And I don't know. I, I had them out of here out of necessity, if nothing else. Like, I don't have anybody to watch the kids today. <laughs> like, come down here with me, and we're going to cut a pig up really quick. And it, it really, yeah, the way it affected the kids, that uh, it was such a huge deal to them. Like, I'm, I don't know, I'm proud to be able to do that for them, you know? That's awesome. My daughter didn't have the same reaction. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she likes the food, though. She likes the food, the macaroni in particular. She's really a good. very, very picky little eater. Whereas my son, like, he's, he's like me. He's down for whatever. Like, what is it? I'll try it. Well, thank you so much for uh, sharing your work with us today. I really awesome. appreciate you coming to talk to me. It's been fun. It's been fun for us, too, and we love your food. Well, like, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Rogan. If you, like me, are a Game of Thrones fan, I want to give a huge shout-out and recommendation this week to Slate's Game of Thrones TV Club podcast. Each week, you can join the great June Thomas, Seth Stevenson, and Isaac Butler, three very smart, cool people, as they dissect every shocking power play for the Iron Throne and debate who will survive this relentless winter. You can listen now at slate.com slash Game of Thrones. And if that's your thing, you can also on Mondays or if you're up late on Sunday nights, check out my weekly column, Worst Person in Westeros, where I try to suss out who sucks the worst on a show full of terrible people. Uh, They also talk about that on the uh, Game of Thrones TV Club podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts about working. Our email address is working at slate.com. You can listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. Working is produced and edited by Mickey Capper. And Mickey and I want to thank Evio Isaac for suggesting that we check out Slows. It was a great recommendation. And, you know, obviously, thanks to you, uh, the listener, for listening to this episode of Working. We'll have more for you next week. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.